Uh, Chrissy Kerr, a very good friend of mine. She actually started about the same time I did. And uh, she's a physician assistant in dermatology uh, for about 12 years. I graduated from Wake Forest, did her master's through Nebraska. Currently works at Scripps Clinic along with Hugh Greenway, if anybody's uh, heard of his course, uh, in the Department of Dermatology and Cutaneous Surgery. Um, she performs extensive surgical repair uh, as well as clinical dermatology and has a great talk. Please welcome Christy Kerr. They told me there'd be a quicker, a wireless quicker so I can advance it. Is my mic? Okay, my mic's on. Oh, thank you. Okay, that's what I was looking for. You gotta love technology some days. And I thought all those balloons were for after my talk, so I'm kind of disappointed now that I find out that they're not. So I thought it was going to be so spectacular that the balloons would drop, everyone would cheer, and it'd be a, a great time. So what I'm going to talk about today is remedies for derm dilemmas. And I kind of just went through my mind and thought about, you know, what kind of things have I gotten into that I needed to get out of complication-wise? and uh, share that information uh, based on studies and personal experience and also textbooks as well. So we're going to talk about uh, medical complications, just a couple of those, surgical complications, and then cosmetic little tweaker fix things that you can do uh, if you get yourself in a jam. So let's see how we do this. There we go. Okay, so like I said, we're going to discuss um, how to either prevent, first of all, prevention is the easiest thing to do rather than get yourself in a complication that you need to fix. So we're going to talk about prevention of complications, medical, surgical, and cosmetic. So the first thing we're going to talk about, this got a little washed out in the transition, um, is corticosteroid atrophy. The font's a little washed out, I'm not really sure why, because it wasn't when I looked at it before, but is corticosteroid atrophy. And this is a little story, one of our nurses um, she had a shoulder strain and she went to employee health and they gave her an IM Kenalog shot, I'm not really sure why, for her shoulder strain. And she ended up with this divot on her hip. She's a very cute 24-year-old girl who now has this deep divot and she was pretty upset about it. So um, we're going to talk about kind of why these things occur. So the reason why the Kenalog atrophy occurs is because the injection is too shallow typically or in the wrong location. And it occurs when uh, the steroid crystals uh, stay in the fat and then they cause My mic This is killing me. <laughs> I can't see my slides and my mic is going out. Okay. Um, so why do people give IM Kenalog shots? Some of the pros to giving IM Kenalog shots is that it gives guaranteed compliance with the patient and has a steady release of the drug. Some of the cons are that patients may need an additional higher dose for something like pemphigus. It does not correlate with the natural cortisol cycle like you would with oral steroids. You can't taper them, and once they're in, you can't get them back. So that's kind of the downsides of them. And then this table shows, um, it's from Bologna, and it shows um, different indications for uh, steroid usage, such as dermatoses, atopic dermatitis, pemphigus, and various things that you would use that for. 
triamcinolone. I'm not really sure why this isn't working out, but I've got big headers at the top that say triamcinolone. <laughs> triamcinolone is the most likely steroid that's going to give you the steroid atrophy. Um, Beta-methasone and dexamethasone have a shorter half-life, so they're less likely to do that. Typically with triamcinolone or Kenalog, you don't want to exceed four to six IM injections per year um, just because you don't want to exceed that and suppress the HPA axis. This you can see, if you can see it, uh, down at the bottom, it's from Bologna as well. Uh, it shows that triamcinolone has the longest half-life of 300 hours compared to the others, which are 40 to 60 hours. So how do you prevent atrophy? There are a couple ways, and the first way is to give proper IM shots. Now, most of your nurses may give IM shots, but in the state of California, medical assistants can't. If you don't have an LVN, you're going to be the one doing it. So. So these are the common injection sites. First is the dorsogluteal site, and that's just drawing a straight line from the SI, from the top of the SI joint to the top of the greater trochanter and kind of hitting that meeting muscle there at the top. The second site is the ventrogluteal site, and that you can just place your hand on the greater trochanter kind of at the base of your finger and make a V, and within that V will be your, your target site. And then the deltoid, that's a little less common to use. Um, for an IM injection shot that's more typical, um, just vaccine injections. Proper technique would include using at least a one-inch needle, 22 to 25 gauge, aspirate before you inject so you're not in a vessel, and then shake the syringe to mix the precipitate so it's not all settled in, in one spot. So how can you treat um, steroid atrophy? One of our fellows was working with us at the time, and he had actually written an article uh, which cited saline injections to help with steroid atrophy, and it will help dilute the crystals, and that lipoatrophy will um, resolve. So he and Dr. Goldman, Mitch Goldman, uh, it was Dr. Peter Shoemaker and Dr. Mitchell Goldman, did a small study of four patients that had steroid atrophy either from scars or from IM injections. And what they did was they just treated them weekly with normal saline, 5 to 20 cc's. I'm not sure what range they picked, but those were their ranges. And they did weekly treatments ranging from three to six weeks and all had complete um, atrophy resolution. So if it does happen, that might be something simple, easy, with low risk that could um, help that little bump or that little divot pop back out. Uh, another drug that can cause some complications is minocycline. Typically, it's used for acne and rosacea. Here's just a picture of a guy with some rosacea. His is pretty bad, so he probably needs a minocycline. Um, the causes of the minocycline pigmentation is that it's a lipid-soluble drug. The yellow crystalline of the drug actually oxidizes and turns black. And the sites that you'll see the oxidation is in the nails, the skin, the sclera, oral mucosa and teeth, bones and thyroid. We won't be looking there, but those other sites you can easily inspect. So here's some pictures of the kind of the um, blue-black pigmentation that you can see with minocycline. There are different types of minocycline hyperpigmentation. The first is type 1, and it's a blue-black pigmentation, usually at the sites of inflammation. So like in someone with acne or rosacea, it will be where you, know, you have the actual lesions on the facial area. Uh, the histology, if you look at it histologically, there's intra- and extracellular iron-containing pigment, um, which may be actually the medication plus some chelated iron as well. The second type of minocycline hyperpigmentation is type 2. It's more of a blue-gray pigmentation. It'll, it'll um, occur at normal skin sites rather than inflammation sites, and it's typically, you'll see it on the lower kind of anterior leg there. The histology, if when you look at it, is um, it'll have melanin and iron-containing pigment in the dermis and in the sub-Q, so it's a little bit deeper. 
And then the third type of uh, minocycline hyperpigmentation is type 3, which is kind of a muddy brown, usually in sun-exposed areas. In the histology, you'd see melanin in the basal layer of other epidermis. You don't see any iron chelation at that point. So what can you do to prevent minocycline pigmentation? On patients who are on uh, minocycline, you might want to ask about have they noticed any pigmentations in themselves? You know, have you noticed any grain of the skin or of um, the nails or teeth? You may want to physically inspect those areas as well, and especially in the oral mucosa, because the patient may not notice it. And then what can you do to fix it? I actually had a patient who'd been on minocycline, not that I had put them on, but someone else had put them on, and she came to me, she said, I'm turning blue, and she really was. She had this kind of blue-gray pigmentation to her, and she'd been on minocycline for a long time. So the first thing I did was I discontinued the drug just to see if that would help. When that didn't, I went to uh, one of my supervising physicians, Dr. Victor Ross, who's going to be speaking tomorrow, and he's a laser expert, and said, you know, what can we do? This lady's kind of blue-black around her brows, her nose, upper lip, and is really unhappy with it. So what he recommended was using an Alex laser, Alexandrite laser, 75 wavelength, uh, three millimeter spot, and six joules per centimeter squared. And the way it works is more similar to um, tattoo removal. When you actually um, fire the laser, you can hear it snapping on the darker crystals, and it breaks it up. The lady was very happy. She called me to tell me it was you know, kind of life-changing. So she was very happy with the results and very easy to do. It made a big difference. Okay, we're going to move on to surgical complications. And the first one we're going to talk about is pin cushioning. And pin cushioning can occur um, most usually in a rhombic flap, typically on the nose is where you'll see it. And it occurs for a couple reasons. So the first thing you want to do is, of course, know how to do a flap, but also know kind of the little things that can help decrease your chance of pin cushioning. So prevention of pin cushioning, one thing that you can do is do some wider undermining around the flap. Um, the other recommendation is actually to square off the corners rather than round off the corners, which was contrary to kind of my thinking, but I've tried it and it actually does help. You can make sure the flap is thinned out. If there's a lot of sub-Q fat or it's thicker on the dermis, it, make sure it's going to be kind of complementary to the site that you're going to rotate the flap into. And then the other thing is to not oversize the flap. So those are things that you can do beforehand to kind of try and prevent pin cushioning. What if, it, what if you do get a pin cushion and the, and the patient comes to you and says, I don't like this bump, I don't like the way this looks, are there some things that you can do? And yes, there are. The first thing is scar revision, which would involve cutting out the flap, thinning out the material or the flap area, and then re-sewing it. So that would be the most involved. The other things that you can try that can actually really help is uh, interlesional catalog, ranging 10 to 40 milligrams, depending on how thick it is. You can start with 10 and always move up. So, and the side effect of atrophy will help the, the side effect of atrophy of the steroid will help that uh, inflammation in the scar and help decrease that. The other thing that we've used for some of our um, most cases to help with the thickening of the scar is um, the pulse dye laser V-beam, and that can help also kind of help with the redness that can occur from the scar and also um, with the thickness somewhat, and then resurfacing with something like a CO2 can be the final thing. So those are just some kind of treatments that you can do. Okay, the second complication that can come up is contact dermatitis. This patient, I'd actually told some people yesterday, ortho had sent them down for presumed cellulitis. She'd had some pins removed in her arm, and they'd sent her down for presumed cellulitis for treatment. And when we looked at her, she actually had vesicles. She'd had a surgery about mm, 
probably about four or five days before. When we looked at her, she actually had blisters and was complaining of severe itch. And what we actually figured out is that she had a contact derm, most likely to the prep. When we looked at kind of the pattern, that was the prep pattern. You can see the line is really well demarcated um, as far as the borders there. So um, typically the causes, so there are a few things that cause contact derm in the surgical setting. One would be the surgical prep, hippoclens, povoiodine is a little bit more common. The topical antibiotics are really getting uh, sensitive with bacitracin and neosporin as well. And then just adhesive from the bandage can cause some people to have small vesicles and blisters. So if the patient calls and says, I think, think I've got an infection, my, my place of my surgical site is all red and itchy, you may want to have them discontinue the bacitracin and see if that helps as far as um, their itching and their discomfort. Prevention of contact dermatitis would be obviously to ask about allergies. And I would ask specifically, you know, are you allergic if you're doing surgery? Ask, are you allergic to PrEP? Are you allergic to povoiodine? Do you ever have any problems with rashes after Band-Aids? Because people won't think about that, you know, when they're coming in for their pre-op for an allergy. They'll think of penicillin and all these medications. But it can really be a booger if you get a, a big dermatitis there. It's uncomfortable for them. And then obviously don't use the agent. And then let the nurses know or write it on their tray or whatever that, um, that they are sensitive because what will happen is your nurse will come to bandage them and they'll put the bacitracin all over them and then they'll end up with the same rash. So I've had that happen a couple times. So the treatment of contact dermatitis, obviously discontinue the offending agent. Let the patient know that you think they are sensitive to this agent and so that they can let future practitioners know uh, if they're going to have a surgical site worked on so they can avoid that. And then you can also use a mid-level to potent steroid around the area, not directly on the wound, but to help decrease that redness and itching and vesicles. The third, the third surgical complication that we're going to talk about is bleeding and hematomas, and this is pretty common. So what you want to find out, um, some of the causes of the bleeding complications can be an underlying medical problem, either drug-induced or just natural state. Medications, obviously your anticoagulants and antiplatelets and even herbals can cause uh, bleeding problems. And then surgical causes of bleeding would be you didn't do enough hemostasis. So postoperatively you can have some surgical complications causing bleeding from that. Typically, you'll see the bleeding complications about 24 hours after surgery. The first six hours, especially when someone's anticoagulated, where you're going to see your calls back to the office that they're bleeding, so keep that in mind. They're presenting symptoms. They'll complain of pain, pressure, and throbbing at the area because it's going to be you know, tight with blood. Prior to doing surgery, in order to help avoid this, you want to take a history know the patient's medical problems, and then ask also about medications. I'd ask specifically about aspirin and vitamin E and all the herbals, just because people won't think of those as well, to list. Before you know it, you'll say, you know, midstream, are you on aspirin? Oh, yeah, I take a baby aspirin every day. They just won't think of that as medication because it's something that they can get over the counter. Something else that can help with uh, hemostasis uh, intraoperatively is using um, some epinephrine with your anesthesia. That causes vasoconstriction and can help uh, nicely uh, with bleeding. You always want to perform adequate hemostasis intraoperatively with um, electrocautery or ligation, tying off the vessels. If it's a big area that you think is probably going to bleed, you'll want to place a drain, something like a Penrose drain, and that will decrease the accumulation of the fluid under your sutured wound and decrease the chances of a hematoma. 
And then lastly, a good pressure dressing. And typically, if someone's anticoagulated, we have them leave it on for 48 hours just so that they don't... Uh, so that they don't bleed through it, especially if it's on a Friday and you don't want to be called in over the weekend. Just leave it till Monday. That'll be fine. And then the last thing is you want to limit motion of the area. Some people will go right from your most surgery suite, shopping, gardening, whatever. So you want to just kind of say, you know, you need to take it easy and limit motion on this area because they can, they can make it bleed pretty quick. So treatments of bleeding. With active bleeding, one thing, you know, pressure is always a good thing. And you can always just hold pressure and have the patient hold pressure. Typically what I tell them is, you know, 10 to 15 minutes by the clock without peaking, and then they can uh, look again and see if that it's actively bleeding. They can also reinforce the dressing and reinforce the pressure through that. If a patient has a hematoma, you're gonna have to evacuate it and most likely place a drain if you haven't done that in the interoperative period. So this is just a picture from Bologna of uh, a hematoma, and you can see how tight and taut it looks. Looks like it's getting ready to just pop there. So the way you evacuate a hematoma is you have to remove some of your stitches and then either squeeze out the clot, that's what's happening in the bottom photo there, or I've actually had to kind of dig them out with forceps, and then identify your bleeder and take care of that. You may need to place a Penrose at this time as well, and I'll show a photo of that, and then re-sew over that to sew the drain in place. So here you can see this is also from Bologna as well. This is someone who's had a hematoma, it looks like. Um, and they've opened them up. They're placing a Penrose drain with some fenestration so that the blood can drain out. And then they've sewn it at place, leaving it a little bit open. When you put a drain in, there will be a little opening at the bottom. But that allows the, drain to, um, the blood to kind of drain out the bottom there just due to gravity. Flap necrosis or graft necrosis is the next thing we're going to talk about. All these things have titles on them. You just can't see them, and neither can I, so bear with me. Sorry about that. Um, graft necrosis uh, usually uh, is combined in the place. It can occur with hematoma and infection, kind of as a cycle that occurs together. It's typically due to poor blood supply in the area and can be very common on the extremities. Tip necrosis is common in flaps, and the flap will appear kind of gray, violet, kind of crusty. I call it the dried potato chip. <laughs> So this is kind of the interrelation between the, is also from Bologna, of uh, hematoma. In the presence of tension or bleeding, a hematoma forms, which is a good breeding ground for infection. And then you can have dehiscence after that. So that's kind of the cycle. So you want to avoid it altogether because it will um, complicate your, your repair. So prevention of flap necrosis, you want to ask kind of the patient's basic health and lifestyle to help you decide what repair to do. If you have kind of a sickly person, you know, a heavy smoker, someone who's not well, you may not want to try, you know, your, your most intricate flap on them. You may be better off just doing something simple. So that's just something to keep in mind, and smoking is a big one. You don't want to undersize the flap. You also want to defat the flap so that um, the, the blood flow will help be established and it won't be limited by the fat area. And then know your anatomy. Some areas are less vascular over cartilage, et cetera, and their flap may not be as viable. So the causes of you know, why people scar more than others is actually really unknown. Um, some people are more prone to hypertrophic or thickened scars, and some people know that before they go into surgery. Some people you don't know until you do it. So um, typically there's increased, microscopically, there's increased cellularity, vascularity, um, and, and connective tissue. And the fibers are kind of a more random rather than regular pattern. Some areas are more prone to scarring, such as the anterior chest and back. Those scars just tend to spread. And some people, like I said, are more prone to scarring as well. 
So know your patient. Ask, you know, what do your other scars look like? And that will help you decide, especially if it's something elective. Um, you want to let the patient know, you know, if they are prone to scarring, that what they have could end up, the scar could end up being worse than whatever the elective uh, lesion is that they want to have removed. So that might help in their decision-making process. And once again, you want to discuss with, along with that the risk-benefit ratio uh, that goes along with removal and possibly creating a scar. Some people use intraoperative uh, steroids if they know that it's a keloid, if someone makes keloids. So some people will do that, and some of the books recommend that. Treatment postoperatively, what can you do? Scar revision, sometimes that makes it worse. There have been some studies that show that it actually makes it worse. Steroid injection can help using intralesional Kenalog. Some people use radiation therapy as well to help decrease those scars. Silicone sheets can help a little bit. I mean, they're not going to help much, but they are something that the patient can actively do at home to help them with that. Pulse dye laser can help as well to decrease the um, vascularity of the scar and then also the redness and the height of the scar. And then something that we've been doing, um, Dr. Ross has been doing, have been 5-FU, liquid 5-FU injections, typically a 9 to 1 ratio, 5-FU to Kenalog, intralesially into the scar to help. And there's some varying ratios in the, in the literature out there, but that's the one that we use. Wound dehiscence is um, a surgical complication that can happen when too much tension is placed on the wound. The wound will pop open. It can happen secondary to infection and hematoma, like we showed in that schematic, and can happen due to excessive motion. It can also happen shortly after suture. I've had people that we take out their sutures and they call me that afternoon and say, they popped open when I you know, bent over to pick up my golf ball or whatnot. But that can happen as well. So in this schematic, you can see that the tensile strength of the wound does not ever reach 100%. And even at eight to nine weeks, it's still only 80% of what it originally was. At two weeks, it's typically down to more like 20%. So a lot of people think just because their sutures are out, um, they're good. But that's actually a real danger time. And this schematic is uh, from Dr. Bologna's book as well. So what can you do to kind of help prevent dehiscence? At the time of the repair, um, you want to look and just see if there's too much tension on the wound to begin with. Make sure that your sutures are adequate for the location and also the tension placed on the wound. You want to let the patient know that they, limit, they need to limit their movement. We live in, I live in California, and so does my colleague back there, and we know patients are active. They want to go you know, do Ironman triathlons as soon as they get off the table, but it's really hard for people to limit their motion. But in some areas, they really, really need to. So it's just it's really an important fact that they need to, to take in. Sometimes you may want to in, uh, remove your sutures in stages, remove half at one point, maybe you know, if it's on a leg, remove them at two weeks, and then remove the other half at three weeks. One thing it does do is it reminds the patient that they still have sutures in because as soon as that they are wound healing, because as soon as their sutures are out, they forget about it and they're on to their, their life. And then what can you do after it dehisses? Not a whole lot. Basically heal by secondary intention and similar to the graft necrosis, wound care, maybe a little debridement if it seems like it's crusty and not very vascular. So an infection is also something. That's actually the last complication. Infection is something that we see. Whenever you do surgery, it's actually, a, it's actually a real risk. It is low, though. It's about 1% to 2% for cutaneous surgery. It can be caused from an adequate prep, just from the patient's own you know, health status, from contamination during surgery. People usually present with it about 4 to 8 days after surgery. Contact derm, like we mentioned to the um, topicals, can mimic 
a bacterial infection and candida as well can, can mimic a bacterial infection. So prophylactically, what can you do to help prevent it? Uh, Pre-op antibiotics, if necessary, or if the patient's been open for a, a very long time, you may want to think about some post-op or intra-op antibiotics. Proper prep of the area with, to decontaminate the area. And then healthcare professionals who are working on the patient should wear the proper uh, PPE. That kind of goes without saying. So in this uh, schematic, you can see this is a list. It's from Bologna as well. You can find it there of recommendations for um, prophylactic antibiotics. And typically, it's uh, Keflex if they're not penicillin allergic, two grams prior, and then 506 to eight hours later. If, and people who are at risk for endocarditis need to be prophylaxed and then usually new joints, but it's not like working on the mouth or the gut. Cutaneous surgery is a relative clean procedure. Treatment for infections. It's gross, but sometimes you gotta do it. You gotta IND it. So you need to decrease that purulent load so that the antibiotics can work and just get that bacteria out. If they've got you know a, a fluctuant firm mass, you may need to just IND it and get that out of there in order to let the antibiotics do their job. We've been culturing all of our infections lately and finding a lot of MRSA, which I'm sure you guys are as well. And, you know, you, the culture will help you guide. You know, you don't want to give them Keflex if that's not going to work. Usually I'll start with something while I'm waiting for my culture, like Keflex, to help with anti-staph, and then wait for my culture and then change it based upon um, the recommendations of the sensitivities. And then just know site-specific antibiotics. Uh, on the ear, due to Pseudomonas, Cipro is usually the one of choice at this point. Cosmetic procedures. Okay, so we're done with our medical. We're done with our surgical section. We're going to move on to cosmetics. And there are some complications that happen with that. And everyone hates an unhappy cosmetic patient. <laughs> I know I do. So, so the most common uh, cosmetic procedure that probably most of us are performing, or a lot of people are performing, is Botox. And it's the most common, currently it's the most common cosmetic procedure between dermatology and plastic surgery. Most people use Botox A or cosmetic Botox by Allergan. That's the most widely used, although Dysport, I believe, is out there as well. I've never used it. Botulinum toxin is purified neurotoxin produced from the botulinum. So we're using the purified protein produced from the botulinum toxin. It acts because it, it works because it blocks the acetylcholine release from the autonomic nerve ending. And the end result is paralysis of the targeted muscle. So something we all want. Typically, when you're the recommended dilution dose or recommended dilution um, from Allergan, and this is what we use, is 100 units per bottle. There's 100 units per bottle, and the standard dilution is 2.5 milliliters of normal saline. We use preservative just because it, saline with preservative, because it actually decreases the pain, and there have been some studies that show it de decreases the pain. I think the insert says unpreserved, but we use it with preservative. Some people are diluting their Botox more to try and get a little bit more out of it. You can get more diffusion just because you're going to have to inject more of a bolus there, and then you can get more diffusion. So just keep that in mind. It might travel a little bit further. So there are certain areas where we use Botox all the time. I know I do. <laughs> this is a very angry man who definitely needs Botox. Uh, so the glabella... Glabella is an area that uh, people use it to help decrease those frown lines. They don't have an after of him. I'd love to see it. Um, the lateral canthus for those pesky crow's feet. And then the forehead to help with those horizontal um, forehead lines. 
And then some people, I'm kind of a chicken, but I don't use it around the mouth. Some people use it around the mouth to help with vertical lip lines and then also to kind of upturn the mouth that you can see here. I'm just, I'm a chicken. I let the dogs do that. So here, we're going to talk about ptosis. So that's the most known complication. You can see on the, I guess it's your right, her eyelid is a little bit lower. So the ptosis won't be that they can't open their eye. It'll be that, you know, it seems a little heavier, a little bit um, more lid exposure there. And it's caused by diffusion of the Botox to the eyelid levator muscle, and the incidence is about 5%. It's caused by placing the injection too close to the orbital rim or also, you know, I guess from the patient if they lay down afterwards and you get diffusion of the area below that, that's why we tell them to stay up afterwards, it can occur. But it's pretty low. So this, you know, you want to know prevention. You want to know your anatomy, where you're needing to inject, and then also the dose amount. Typically for a glabella, you're going to use between 16 and 20 units. Um, as far as going to the lateral brow, you want to stay mid-pupillary and typically about one centimeter above the brow is the guideline at the lateral edge of that lateral injection. So you can see you've got basically five injection sites, although, you know, there's tons of different recipes. I've used three. I've used, you know, you know just stayed central depending on the person's anatomy. But typically um, it's on the medial side of the corrugator and then the lateral and then also right in the middle of the eye at the glabella and the procerus. So this is actually my dad. <laughs> and I'm just showing um, some people, the way I use, the way I kind of palpate is with uh, my thumb, and I find the supraorbital ridge. And then I kind of leave my thumb there to kind of push up that muscle and give me a little bit of elevation. It also, um, it'll, it also people have said it's a reflex, reflexology pressure point and helps with pain. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that holistic. But if it helps, it helps. Um, the more dilute the Botox, the more it will travel. And you want to know how many units you need in each area. Typically 16 to 20 for the glabella, 12 to 16 for the lateral canthus. But that's all dependent on your individual patient. If you have a patient that you use 12 units on in the lateral canthus and they didn't get good paralysis, you may need to bump that up to 20. So, you know, it's all, that's just kind of guidelines. So what can you do if someone does get ptosis? Um, iodopine eye drops are a prescription eye drop that you can use and also phenylephrine. These are two agents that elevate the lids by contracting the Mueller's muscles and basically the patient just uses the drops a few times a day until the ptosis resolves. Brow ptosis is the next thing we're going to talk about and I actually I call that the Cro-Magnon man look. It's where the forehead kind of overdrops from paralysis and they get this kind of ridged brow and also they can have redundant tissue um, in their eyelid area. And it'll happen uh, when the lower two to four centimeters of the frontalis in the brow um, is overparalyzed. And some people it's more common as far as with the low brow or low forehead. It's more common in older patients that actually have redundant tissue around their eyelids. I think people, myself included, as we get older, we kind of try and open our eyes a little bit more using our forehead muscles so that we appear more youthful. And uh, if you paralyze that, that brow will drop and they'll actually, that excess skin will make itself more apparent. So then they realize they need a bluff, but it's a different department. So I kind of call it my Cro-Magnon man look when I tell people, oh yeah, that's, you got the Cro-Magnon man look. So you want to look at the patient's anatomy prior to, um, and if they have a lower forehead, keep that in mind. You know, you don't, probably won't want to do your six injections across the forehead. Um, you want to avoid those injections within a centimeter of the supraorbital margin. Palpate that bony rib. Sometimes if, I, if I'm unsure or I'm worried about that, what I'll do is I'll do the glabella first, 
in one setting because you're going to get a little paralysis in the lower forehead just from doing that and then have the patient come back about one to two weeks later and do their forehead because they may not need as much and that way you can uh, kind of guard yourself from over paralyzing that, that forehead as well. The last complication of Botox, this is actually my patient, uh, is called the arched eyebrow or the Jack Nicholson brow, they call it. So I had done some Botox on this young lady, and she called me. She said, when I raise my eyes, I look like the Joker. And I said, well, come in and let me see. And sure enough, when she raised her eyebrows, they did kind of flare up at the edges. And this is just because the lateral frontalis is not paralyzed enough, and it will produce that overarched eyebrow when it's with movement, so when she raised it. So what you can do there to kind of help correct that is just add a little bit of uh, one to two units of Botox where my little arrows are, kind of just right at that point of where it's charged, and it'll bring it back down. And it did. Hyaluronic acid is a really popular filler that we're using now, and it is very safe. I, I don't think I use collagen much at all just because it lasts such a short time. We've almost completely switched to hyaluronic acid just because it seems to be such a better product. Um, it's a good filler for rytids it's in wrinkles. It's primarily used around the mouth, perioral area, although you can use it other, way, other places. Um, you, it's a little bit deeper injection than with collagen. It's in the mid to deep dermis. And there are some benefits of hyaluronic acid. It's very safe. It's stable. You don't have to do a patch test to it. So those are some big things that are um, very nice about hyaluronic acid. It also lasts a lot longer um, than previous collagen products did. So it is a good product. And there are, some, there are some complications that occur. One is bruising at the injection site. So that's something that can happen. And you can also, um, you need to, so you need to consider these things. Bruising can happen, so you want to ask, you know, are you on aspirin? Are you on anticoagulants? You know, if they are, you may want to say, you might get a little more bruise. You also want to know um, what their expectations are, patient expectations, as far as what the correction amount is going to be. Um, and then also you want to know um, how much filler you need to use from the get-go, so that way you can estimate for the patient. So here's just some bruising that can occur, and typically this occurs... Um, in the mouth area, and it can occur even if you're doing the anesthetic to help with it or if you're using a lot of sticks. So a way to prevent the bruising is you want to ask about medications, ask if they're on anticoagulants, use fewer sticks, perhaps use insert and do a retrograde injection. You want to do proper technique and be a little bit deeper than right, right below the epidermis. You don't want to be there. Ice post-treatment can help, and then just let the patient know. You know, if they've got their daughter's wedding this Saturday, you may not want to do a wrestling injection this week because if they end up with a bruise, they're not going to be happy with you. So just, you know, kind of keep those expectations and those realistic complications of what can happen uh, in mind. So what happens if you overfill or you overcorrect? The other nice thing is that with hyaluronic acid is that you can um, dissolve that gel using hyaluronidase. And this is a study in the archives of facial and plastic surgery. And they use 75 units to reduce 0.2 cc's of hyaluronic acid. And basically, they reduced it by 80% in four to seven days. 90% remained in the control group. Contraindication for hyaluronidase is an allergy to bee venom. So there, you know, if it does, it's too lumpy, bumpy, it is overfilled, you can use hyaluronidase to get rid of it. So that is a nice kind of safety feature, I guess. Sclerotherapy can present some complications as well. We're going to kind of concentrate on hyperpigmentation. Um, other sclerotherapy complications can occur. Most of these have to do with needle phobia and vasovagal reactions. So 
uh, know, know that those things can happen. But hyperpigmentation is what I'm going to concentrate on. And matting. Matting can occur. So complications can be matting, post-treatment clots, which are very easy to resolve, and I'll talk about that, and post-scleral hyperpigmentations. Those are going to be the scleral things we're going to talk about. So in this picture, you can see up top, it's bright red, just recent, just status post-scleral treatment, and then it kind of turns to a more brown, and that can happen, it's happened to me, myself, and uh, it can happen. It does typically resolve. It's common, 10 to 30% of the time, and it's caused by extra, extravasation of the hemosiderin um, leaking out through the vessel. Uh, if, you're high, if the patient is hypercoagulable state, it can also occur, and age and skin type also contribute to whether or not hyperpigmentation is going to occur. So patient selection is important in determining uh, hyperpigmentation. You want to use the proper sclerosant for the vessel size. You want to treat your higher pressure vessels first. Proper technique, I use kind of the air bolus or air block technique, and that lets you know if you're in the vessel before you actually in, infuse the sclerosant. And that's, there's a photo up here um, in a minute. It's uh, where you draw back a little bit of air into the needle and then infuse that. It'll push out the blood, and you'll see that you're in the vessel because it'll clear. And then you can go ahead and infuse your sclerosant. After treatment, if the patient does have some little small clots, you can evacuate those easily with an 18-gauge or an 11-blade and just kind of make a nick and push those out. And that will help those resolve and also help with um, sequel of hyperpigmentation. If the patient's on minocycline, that can lead to hyperpigmentation as well. So once again, just ask about medications. And in California, we always have to tell them, I'm sure in Florida here, to avoid that sun exposure. So some ways to minimize the post-scleral hyperpigmentation ask about medications, uh, minimize the pressure in the vessel, possibly elevate the leg to do that as well while you're doing the treatment, have the patient lie recumbent. So this is just the air block technique. And you can see in the syringe, there's a little bubble um, just at the tip, and then it will infuse in first. Clear the blood out so you'll know you're in the vessel, and then you can go ahead and infuse your sclerosin. If a patient does get hyperpigmentation, what can you do? IPL may help. There's some studies that show IPL can help. Using a topical such as Retin-A or azelaic acid can help as well. Alpha hydroxy acid can help as well. Sunscreen, limit that sun exposure so they're not making it worse. And it can last up to six to 12 months, so you just have to let the patient know expectation-wise what they need to expect. Matting. So matting is the second complication we're gonna talk. It's common. It's when, uh, once you do a sclerotherapy session, teeny tiny blood vessels come up and the patient will say, you got rid of my big vessels, but here are these tiny vessels. It happens 5 to 14% of the time. Some risk factors for it are obesity, hormones, and a family history. The more common sites for matting are the thighs, lower leg, and ankle. And typically it can resolve on its own in 3 to 12 months. Some ways to prevent matting or try and prevent matting is to use a small amount of sclerosin when you're injecting, uh, use low-pressure injections, and reduce the risk factors, obesity and being a female. That's kind of, you know, family history. Those are hard things to reduce. But So what can you do to treat matting if it occurs? You might want to re-inject with a microneedle, 23 to 25 gauge. So if you get a needle small enough that you can get into that vessel, you just sclerose it again. And if they're small enough, laser may work on them. Something like a 532 may work if the lasers are small enough. Uh, you can treat them with that. 
These are some laser complications, and uh, these are courtesy of one of my supervising physicians, Dr. E. Victor Ross, and he's going to be talking tomorrow. He's a really good speaker. So, Many complications occur because there's not enough coolant. That's probably the most common reason for complications. So you really want to make sure you use enough coolant. You, you really need to do that. And even if you don't think you need it, you might just add some more. There are different types of coolant. One is a contact coolant, something like a cold roller. It's kind of like a cold rolling pin. Cold gel to help disperse that heat. Air coolers like the Zimmer, we have one. It's really nice. It's like a personal air condition, and that can help cooling the skin and also for patients' personal comfort. Some lasers have coolant built in, either in the form of a chill tip or cryogen spray that fires at the same time. So cooling is kind of your biggest thing to kind of help with uh, decreasing your complications. So this is IPL uh, that was done without enough coolant. Okay, so you can see it causes a burn. <laughs> That's the basic, the basic biology is it causes a burn. And this is IPL also that wasn't, you can see on the right side it's much worse than the left. The right side did not have enough coolant on it. And those are going to end up crusting and maybe leaving some hypopigmentation, which we'll see in this photo. This is hypopigmentation um, after IPL. I'm not bashing IPL. Those are just the photos that I had. Um, this is many weeks after um, surgery or after a procedure. And you can see they've got these squares, these hypopigmented squares. And these come from not using enough coolant. So you can either use your direct cold roller as coolant in between, you know, pat, um, you know, after passes, or you can use an air coolant or gel coolant. So coolant, coolant, coolant. Complications with it. What will happen is you'll get pigment changes. Oh, sorry. This is this is driving me crazy because I'm kind of going off memory here. This is complications from Q-switch lasers. You can have pigment changes um, with pig status post. Uh, treatment. They're more common in dark skin. If you're using a Q-switch laser uh, in a facial area, you want to ask about cosmetic tattoos. You may not even know they may be so good that you don't know they have it, but if you hit that area with the laser, it'll turn it from flesh or pink to black, and that's not good. <laughs> and so that's the thing. You just want to ask, do you have your eyebrows tattooed? Do you have your lips tattooed? You just want to be careful of those areas. And the other thing Dr. Ross wanted me to say is always ask about gold. We've had a case recently. Um, if a patient has ever taken gold, uh, when you hit them with the Q-switch laser, it'll turn their skin black. So keep that in mind. Gold, gold, gold. It's prevention of uh, post-hyperpigmentation or Q-switch complications. You want to know the patient and their skin type. You know, check to see what their true color is. Make sure they're not tanned. Ask about cosmetic tattoos. When in doubt, always do a test site. I mean, patients will appreciate you keeping their safety in mind. Do a test site and just see how they do in any type of laser. And once again, ask about meds and gold. Complications can arise from hair reduction, and typically those will be um, pigment changes. It can be to too high of an energy, not enough coolant, or if the patient's tanned. You know, you see someone in February and you do a treatment on them, and then you use those same parameters in June, you could run into trouble. So that's just the thing. Keep in mind that the patients are doing things to their skin between the times that you see them. The other thing that can occur is herpes simplex. So if you're doing a perioral bikini area, you want to ask if they're prone to that and possibly do um, antiviral prophylaxis. And then in areas where people have tattoos that you're doing tattoo removal, if you're using certain lasers such as the 1064, you just want to ask about, you know, you want to avoid those tattoos because this is a hair removal 
that went over tattoo, and you can see they got an inadvertent removal of their tattoo when that um, wavelength struck the, ta struck the tattoo. So they had a little non-healing ulcer, and then the tattoo was gone in that area. So pair prevention of complications from laser hair reduction. Ask the patient if you're tan. Have you just been to Mexico? Have you just been to Hawaii? You know, ask is this, are you tan at all? If they're in the dermatologist's office, they'll probably deny it, but uh, just ask about it anyways. One thing that we use is a pigment meter to try and get, it's a little device that you can place on the inside of the arm to get a more true reading of what someone's true pigment is, and it's a, it'll give you more of an objective, or, yeah, objective uh, reading of what their true skin type is. You can always start lower on your energies and move up. That's okay to do rather than overshoot it the first time. You know, try them at a lower energy, and if they do okay, next session, go on up. If they do have a tendency towards um, HSV, use prophylactic acyclovir or valcyclovir. Use proper technique. Don't double pulse. Don't stack your pulses. And use proper coolant methods. And what happens if you do get some uh, post-hair reduction uh, hyperpigmentation? Time and reassurance. You can start Retin-A, Hydroquinone, or Azelaic Acid and keep the area protected from the sun. And just always remember that prevention is easier than trying to treat it. So if you can prevent the complication, it's easier than trying to, trying to treat the complication, but hopefully I've given you a couple of tips of how to treat it. And again, I apologize for the PowerPoint. It looked beautiful on my screen at home. So thank you for your patience today.